0: Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. My name is Shannon Boley. I'm a Masters of Theological Studies student here at HDS. And I want to thank everyone for coming to this event, um, Building Bridges, Refugee Asylum, and Immigration Advocacy at Harvard. As part of Dr. Moore's Religion, Peace, and Conflict seminar last spring, I began to organize this event. And really, it is amazing to see it come to life today. I first want to thank everyone who made this event possible. I want to thank the guidance of Dr. Diane Moore and Carly Bonneau, who helped guide this panel's vision, for the Religious Literacy Project, for generously funding this panel, Katie Caponera from the OSL office for helping me organize the event, my colleagues for helping me run it, the panelists and moderator, and all of you for coming. This panel was designed to highlight diverse initiatives already happening at Harvard to address some of these important issues of refugee asylum and immigration advocacy. Oftentimes, we can think of big institutions like Harvard as being oppressive. Through this panel, I want to highlight amazing people inside this institution who are advocating for sustainable peace. And the best part about it is that this panel is just a small sampling of the work that's going on here. There are professors and initiatives at the college, the ed school, the Kennedy School, FAS's sociology department, and the School of Public Health that are doing activist work on these issues. If I had everyone doing this kind of work at Harvard on this panel, this event would be even longer than graduation. (laughs) That being said, hopefully students from those schools are in the audience and can contribute to this panel's rich discussion. This panel also focuses on interdisciplinary approaches to these issues, which reflects our diverse panel today. The panel will begin with introductions of the panelists from our moderator. Then panelists will explain their story and their work, which will then lead to a discussion between them. Then we will have time for audience question and answer. So now I would like to introduce our moderator, Professor Francis X. Clooney, SJ. Professor Clooney is the Parkman Professor of Divinity and Professor of Comparative Theology and past director of the CSWR. His work specializes on comparative theology and interreligious dialogue. His most recent publication is Learning Interreligiously in the Texts and in the World. Thank you so much, Frank.
1: Well, I think I would like to begin, and I think I'm sure we'll do this again at the end by thanking Shannon Boley for arranging this event. We know and we're often heartbroken by the, the, um, the terrible tragedy of displacement, forced migration, refugees, and all the terrible things that come from that. And our own country obviously is not immune Um, to the worst parts of the oppression and the suffering that people undergo. And so to bring this to the fore, I think is a brilliant idea. And you've already thanked many of the people who helped you on this. And it's wonderful to see with the bridge program and with the work that our panelists are doing, that Harvard is is, um, not simply saying good things, but doing good things and using the resources, the expertise of our scholars, our staff, people working at Harvard, to try to make a small contribution to resolving the issues before us. And that's exciting when you see that a community at a university comes together in order to help people to improve their lot, to overcome injustice, and to collaborate among all of us. I mean, it makes such a big difference and you're really highlighting this for us tonight. So thank you so much for for bringing us together for this event. So my job is fairly modest here. Um, mainly to learn, I think along with uh, the audience in general. I will introduce the speakers. Uh, they will I'll introduce them all at once, and they will then have uh, five to seven minutes to, to introduce simply what they do and what their work is and what they bring to this panel. And then I have some leading questions, uh, no trick questions, they've seen the questions already, uh, that will just open up a brief discussion among the panelists with me as the guide to it and then open it up for all of you to participate in the discussion too. So I'm sure there's a lot of expertise in the room as well. So let us begin then. So um, Sabrina Ardalan is an assistant clinical professor at Harvard Law School and assistant director of the Harvard Immigration and Refugee Clinical Program. At the clinic, Ardalan, uh, Dr. Ardalan uh, supervises and trains law students working in, on applications for asylum and other humanitarian protections, as well as appellate litigation and policy advocacy. She also oversees and collaborates closely with the clinic's social work staff. She teaches courses on immigration and refugee law and advocacy, on international labor migration, on trauma, refugees, and the law. Our second speaker is uh, Daisy Rodriguez, who is here as a custodian at Harvard. She is originally from El Salvador. In between her job duties and family obligations, she has somehow found time to complete many courses at the Harvard Bridge um, at the Center for the Workplace Development at Harvard. Uh, She works with service workers from all departments at Harvard, including custodians, uh, dining service workers, parking attendants, and security guards. She also has the pleasure of connecting with staff and graduate students from all over Harvard who volunteer to tutor at the Bridge Program. Our third speaker um, will be Jennifer Goulart. Uh, Jennifer is an English as a second language instructor and a program manager of the Tutor Program at the Bridge Program at the Center for Workplace Development. I'm sorry, I'm getting this confused.
2: Um, A little end of my bio tacked onto
1: hers, but that's okay. Uh, We're all a big family. Let me do this right. So, um, yes, this semester. So, back. I'm sorry. I I, I skipped paragraphs. So, Daisy Rodriguez again is custodian at Harvard, working um, with the Harvard Bridge, uh, also including Advanced English, Computer Skills, Pronunciation, and Career and Professional Development Program. This semester, through the Bridge, she is doing an administrative internship at the Harvard Romance Languages Program. Did I get that right? That's okay, right. then Jennifer Goulart, and I'm sorry to um, have skipped somehow, is in English as a second language instructor and program manager in the tutor program at the Bridge Program at the Center for Workplace Development. She works with service workers, including custodians, dining service workers, parking attendants, security guards. She also has the pleasure of connecting with staff and graduate students from all over Harvard who volunteer to tutor at the Bridge Program. And then finally, uh, Daniel Dioka is an associate professor in practice of urban planning at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and principal and co-founder of the Interborough Partners, a New York-based architecture planning and research firm. He teaches a course, Refugees in the Rust Belt, which focuses on urban planning for cities with large refugee populations. So let us welcome our speakers and then they can take their turn speaking.
3: Hi everyone. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, thanks for organizing this wonderful panel. Uh, just wanted to tell folks a little bit about our work at the Immigration and Refugee Clinic at the Law School. Um, we've been around for about 30 years. The clinic is a um, is works in partnership with Greater Boston Legal Services, which is the largest legal services provider in New England, um, and. Clinical legal education in the law school context means that law students get hands-on training uh, actually representing people who are seeking asylum and other kinds of humanitarian protection here in the US as part of their legal education. And so we supervise students in that process and we represent clients from really all over the world. Um, These days a lot of folks from Central America, when I first started about 10 years ago, lots of folks from different countries in Africa, um, folks from different countries in the Middle East. So, um, And we help them through the process of of trying to seek protection so they can stay here um, in the US. And um, we also um, have, and so second and third year law students can work on those cases, and they get credit for it. And many of them um, work with our clinic for multiple semesters to be able to see cases from start to finish. because. Uh, the immigration process often takes quite a while. Um, Even starting their first year students um, can work on uh, cases involving things like family reunification. So for the clients uh, who we've successfully represented, who are trying to petition to bring their children or family members here, um, they can work on those cases. We also um, do a lot of community outreach, particularly since um, uh, since the change in administration, um, we've been um, partnering with a lot of different groups um, across Boston, uh, including a nonprofit called City Life and um, going to a health center uh, in Chelsea once a month um, and holding um, sort of something like office hours where um, uh, members of City Life and patients of Chelsea can come to each of those organizations. Um, and Ask us immigration questions that they might have. Um, we also do a lot of work in Somerville with um, a sanctuary coalition there to uh, know your rights presentations and advice and councils in partnership with um, that coalition, too. So, our efforts, um, you know, are are to really try to uh, protect and advance immigrants' rights as, as much as we can, and, um, and to train law students to do the same. So our hope is that uh, folks will continue with this work after they graduate, um, whether in a full-time capacity or pro bono, um, and so to try to expand the number of people who can, um, who can provide representation to uh, immigrants and, and refugees, because in the immigration context, there's a right to a lawyer, but it's at your own expense. And so um, there's a real shortage of pro bono legal services. And so our goal is to to try to train folks to, to be able to do that work um, after they graduate. We also have um, an initiative uh, that we call the Harvard Representation Initiative that the university funded after uh, the election um, where we have a staff attorney and a paralegal and additional social work support um, for members of the Harvard community specifically. So um, the goal of that project is uh, to provide any member of the Harvard community who has any questions about um, their immigration status with um, free legal advice and representation um, to them and um, to members of their family who they might be concerned about as well. Um, as best as we can. So uh, we feel very lucky to have that support um, from the university. It's something that we had been doing as part of the clinic, um, you know, over the course of the existence of the clinic, but something that now that we have additional resources to do, we can much more proactively try to reach out across the university campus uh, so folks are aware of our services and and can um, avail themselves of it. Uh, and we're really grateful to programs like the Bridge Program and others who can, who've can who helped tremendously spread the word um, about that resource. Because uh, Harvard is really big, and it's often hard to get the word out. So please uh, spread the word. Happy to share the contact information for that, too. Um, so,
2: yeah. um, so hi, I'm Jennifer Goulart. I work at the Bridge Program, which is part of the Center for Workplace Development. And um, we offer classes, professional development, to all the hourly workers at Harvard. So that's for anyone who's um, you know, born in the US, not born in the US, non-native speaker of English, native speaker of English, but we do end up with a, a lot of people in our classes um, who, are, um, who speak English as a second language and who are um, immigrants. And um, the people who are taking advantage of our classes have jobs like in um, custodial services, dining services, all this, these jobs that you see there. And um, it also includes the contracted workers. So for example, the food service at the business school is provided by restaurant associates, um, but those employees are eligible to come and, and take classes um, at the BRIDGE program through the Wage and Benefit Parity Act, um, the Securitas Security Guards are another group. Um, and we also have a few classes, um, pronunciation and communication that are popular with the, um, the international postdoctoral fellows. Um, but they do have to be the, the benefits-eligible ones. There's a lot of um, visiting scholars on um, campus who don't have Harvard benefits who are just kind of left to their own devices. You may have you may have met them. <laughs> um, and um, we have a lot of different classes. We always respond to the needs of what people are asking for. English as a second language is, is always popular. And we have a lot of people who have interrupted formal education um, due to coming from a country where there was you know, warfare or natural disasters or poverty or living in a rural area. Um, and for those folks, it, it takes even more semesters of, of English um, to reach proficiency. And um, computer skills classes are are popular, and we really start with, you know, clicking, double-clicking the mouse for the first time, you know, all the way up through um, Microsoft Office. People can get their high school diploma, um, and often the people taking those classes, um, English is their second language, so our most recent graduates, they were from... Um, Cape Verde, El Salvador, uh, and Haiti. And um, we've been growing our career and professional development program for people who are trying to move from a service job into an office job or another, another career path. Um, You're going to hear a little bit more about that um, from me and from Daisy. Um, this is my pronunciation class I taught in the summer, and everybody in the class was working on polishing their speaking skills so they could do an internship or do well in the workplace. Um, a lot of them were um, participating in that and professional development class. And um, some of them have really made moves. So um, Andy here worked for Dining Services for about 12 years, and now he has a great um, accounting job at the um, Graduate School of Education. So um, it's great to see the way people make moves. And um, let's see. And besides the classes, we end up doing a lot of other services. People can get um, help preparing for the citizenship test through individual tutoring. I also organize a, a tutoring program. My first priority are people who can't come to our classes because they have a scheduling conflict, and then other people want extra help. Um, and I think especially through the tutoring program, really the one Harvard thing starts to happen, because our tutors are, some of them are here today, um, Harvard staff, graduate students, work-study students, um, people from the community. I even had an FAS parent, um, people who are retired. So a lot of really great connections happen through that. Um, and we also end up doing a lot of outreach and education about um, benefits and services um, that are available to, um, to employees here. People trust us, so they come to us with questions. You know, Sometimes we help make a call to the Employee Assistance Program had people bring in a letter and saying, my son got accepted to a charter school. Is this a good idea? Um, how, do, how does the tuition assistance work? I know, All different kinds of things. And um, this is an example. You know, In our office right now, we have um, flyers up around about the, the legal um, clinic at the law school, always referring people to go to that. Um, there was a big push in the spring when there was a deadline around TPS. Um, and just in the past month, I've, I've, I've referred people to go. Um, with us. And oh, um, this is a picture from, uh, we have a dinner every year for people who get their citizenship, and um, President Faust used to come every year. We're hoping that uh, the new president will also come. Um, and uh, the challenge is, I'm wrestling a lot with the digital divide. So that's actually a picture from my English class yesterday. And um, my students were logging on to look at the online component of their English book. And it took about 30 minutes to get everybody logged on. Um, there's a lot of people studying with us um, who've got a smartphone. They can kind of do what they need to do with a smartphone. But they kind of were n- never had the opportunity to become agile with using a laptop or a desktop computer. Three people in my class didn't have an email address. I had to get them an email address first. So um, I think this really impacts people's access to knowledge and to benefits um, and just you know being able to participate in, in um, university life, community life. So I'm, you know, really dedicated to digging in a little deep to the digital divide thing. I feel like it's not sexy to talk about the digital divide that was like so 90s, but it's still there and getting bigger, I think, in a way. So, um, yeah, and then we do have a lot of people who are studying with us who are on um, temporary protective status and the deadline is looming. So um, it's a big concern um, to all the teachers that, that care about and the volunteers who care about our students. Um, And then on the more positive note, (laughs) I'll tell you about some of the people who've really made moves um, through participating in the bridge programs. Um, We have, for the people who do the career and professional development classes, um, many of them do an internship at the end. and This is so that when they're trying to get an office job, the first thing on their um, their resume isn't cashier or custodian. you know, intern in, a, in the Harvard office, they have, um, they've looked at, they've learned the Harvard financial um, systems, they have a Harvard um, references, and you may recommend, uh, recognize uh, Calixto, he spoke at the president's installation. Uh, when I met him, he was a cashier at the medical school, and now he's directing a huge lab, um, and he really pays it forward. He takes interns from Roxburgh Community College. Um, and Edgar was a landscaper at the law school. And um, he um, was a, a big contributor to the bridge because he taught our computer classes on Saturday mornings in Spanish, English, and Portuguese. Um, and then he was so popular at the law school that he was invited to apply for a staff position. And he's really kind of moved up the ranks there. And he, in turn, takes on interns. So he keeps um, passing it forward. And Monica is another person. She was um, a cashier at the business school. Um, at a, a contractor, you know, for the restaurant associates. And um, she really had great skills. And the, again, the, the um, barrier was the resume. And she did our first internship. She did one, um, and then she had a job at the David Rockefeller Center, moved up, 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 up there. And now she's at the Saffir Center. And now the people under her are taking on interns. So um, <coughs> next you'll hear from Daisy, who is... Probably the next person's gonna be added to <laughs> this PowerPoint um, because she's, she's taking classes at the bridge and she's, she's doing an internship too. So.
4: Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Daisy. I am from El Salvador. Living in the United States about, uh, for about 20 years, my purpose to come here was continue with my edu- education. I got married in 2000. I have four children, so I decided to stay at home with my children, and it's the best decision I have taken. I've been working for Harvard since 2015 as a custodian. I enrolled to take English classes at Harbor Bridge Program in September 2015. Then for next semester, I enrolled to take computer skills class, and I enrolled in every class I could come and take, such as career in professional development. In the career in professional development class, I learned skills such as interviewing skills, identifying my transfer skills, and identifying my personal brand. I complete this class and now I'm doing an administrative internship at Romance and Language and Literature Department. During this internship, I will get introduced to finance departmental administration and problem solving in general. As an immigrant, we have to face so many challenges and we need help, sometimes, we need help to achieve our goals. Harbor Bridge means a lot for me. I feel so grateful because they have guided me through who I am now. I have learned a lot, and I truly appreciate that. I admire the kindness and patience for my teachers because I know they do it from the heart. Since last fall, the Trump administration has ended TPS for thousands of immigrants from El Salvador, Haiti, Sudan, Honduras, and Nicaragua. And I think this was really devastating for a lot of families uh, um, from these countries. Um, Especially for me, it was so overwhelming. But um, um, uh, as you know, TPS, allows immigrants who cannot be safely repatriated to their countries because of civil disruptions or natural disasters to live and work in the United States legally. Uh, fortunately, fortunately, uh, last week we received a good news that TPS it will be renewed again. And thank you.
5: Well, hi, it's uh, great to be over here at the Divinity School. Uh, so I teach at the um, Design School. And don't come over here, nearly enough. Um, so it's good good, good to be here, um, and it's really inspiring to hear uh, all these wonderful things that are going on um, at Harvard. So um, this is a talk about Refugees in the Rust Belt, which is the name of a studio class that I taught uh, at the Design School in the fall 2017 actually one of a number of uh, studios that I teach um, about uh, immigration and refugees. Um, So I also do some classes with urban planning students over at the design school, uh, looking at gateway cities. So we've worked in Malden, Lowell, um, Quincy, a number of other places in the region, thinking about what makes a good gateway city. What what is it um, in terms of housing, uh, transportation, public space? What are the things that help um, immigrants and refugees integrate and thrive? Um, the premise of this studio um, was that architects, landscape architects, urban planners—these are my students—should, um, uh, could, and should probably should play a larger role in the in the ref- refugee resettlement process. Um, There's a book we read called *Arrival City* and. The author, Doug Saunders, says around the world it appears that uh, a good part of the success or failure of an arrival city has to do with its physical form, Um, and that's what we do over at the design school. Um, So while the forecast for refugee resettlement in the current administration is obviously grim, really use the studio as a way to uh, identify different ways to help existing refugees thrive in their arrival cities, but also think about a future, a less xenophobic future, Um, and also sort of did a lot of research to try to make a case for the many economic and cultural benefits that refugee uh, refugees bring to um, C- C- Rust Belt communities, and then highlight the kinds of things that Rust Belt cities are presently doing. Um, so uh, you most of you know today there's over 65 million refugees worldwide, the highest number of displaced persons ever recorded in the design community, um, in architecture especially, Uh, Most of the efforts to help deal with this humanitarian crisis have have, have centered, rightly centered, uh, on on immediate needs related to the design of refugee camps. Um, But especially in the U.S., there's been a lot less attention paid by the design community to refugee resettlement. Since 1975, close to 3 million refugees have been resettled across the United States, process that has resulted in large vibrant refugee communities um, all across the country. Um, And uh, so I think these communities really remind us that refugees don't just come to nations, they come to cities. Um, And while officials at the national level kind of determine who qualifies as a refugee and establish refugee quotas, how well refugees fare uh, depends in part on the efforts of local entities who are entrusted with helping refugees find housing and employment, get around, generally adapt to everyday life. Um, So this was our goal for this particular studio. Um, Working with refugee resettlement organizations in St. Louis, Detroit, and Cleveland, students will make uh, proposals at a variety of scales aimed at helping refugees thrive in their Rust Belt arrival cities. We took a lot of inspiration from this design competition called What Design Can Do. Um, We did a lot of research and learned very quickly that our European colleagues are very far ahead of us here. and so we, we we studied a lot of um, precedents for um, refugee housing and um, refugee community space and economic development programs that I think work quite well in cities like Berlin. Uh, here, are my students uh, on our field trip. So we visited the three cities. Students had, actually had very few parameters and were encouraged to think boldly about how their different these different disciplines um, could shape cities in a way to to help um, refugees and, and immigrants. Uh, in order to uh, avoid overly speculative work, um, students were required to base their project on a community-defined uh, priority. Um, so, you know, for example, someone on our field trip talked about the need for uh, trauma-informed design in a particular neighborhood in Detroit, where a lot of young um, people were being resettled. And uh, you know, a student did a, a nice kind of neighborhood plan looking at trauma-informed. Design practices opposed to the redesign of open space. Quite a nice project. Um, there's another resettlement agency that wanted a kind of a large-scale vision for some of the um, for the neighborhood that they had been resettling refugees in, and this is in Cleveland. And a student. This is just a quick snippet of a much larger project, but a student kind of made a, I think, quite nice and sensitive um, vision for this this neighborhood. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not, I, don't wanna, I can't go into too much detail about any of the projects. I'm already at five minutes here. Uh, but there were a lot of takeaways, I think, that, that we had based on this, this 15-week uh, class. Um, you know, and, and for example, um, it's, we learned it's really important to leverage cities' robust networks of public, private, nonprofit, and philanthropic actors. Uh, it became very clear to us that refugee resettlement um, is not possible without this robust network. Um, and in all the cities we visited, we really witnessed how, uh, how the public and private sectors work together. Um, um, uh, remember the basics. Um, so a lot of projects are really making the point that I think what a lot of gateway cities need are the kind of same things that a lot of neighborhoods need, namely a healthy diversity of housing and transit options, uh, well-paying entry-level jobs. Walkable, mixed-use blocks, affordable, uh, accessible, commercial storefronts. So a lot of the projects um, dealt with that, but a lot of the projects went beyond the basics. Since we had the kind of luxury of a, of being in a studio environment, uh, students use this uh, setting to identify other kinds of investments that could support and nurture immigrant and refugee communities. So this this project that I showed you earlier, which is this kind of large-scale vision for a neighborhood and Cleveland. That was, by the way, centered around a uh, school that where all refugee um, students uh, came. Um, The student thought about housing and public housing and transportation, but also, you know, thought about um, surprising programs, music pavilions, conversation pits, um, all kinds of different things that were that were supposed to provide new arrivals opportunities to express their culture and individuality, integrate into their community, and Bonds with the residents of the neighborhood. So I'm at seven minutes here, but um, real quick, other students looked at... You can take um, you a couple of students. Oh, here. I'll take one. How about <laughs> <all right. laughs> a uh, but so the student, this is a student who um, was working with the resettlement organization that wanted to sort of rethink what a refugee resettlement office could be. And I know this looks really expensive and probably won't be built, but there's some really good ideas in here about um, how you might rethink what a resettlement office is and turn it out from being a building to being a sort of campus that creates co-benefits and, and sort of fulfills needs in the community that it's in. Um, so again, I don't have too much detail to talk about this in, in, in any great length, but it's quite a nice project. And I think uh, this is another student who was working with a resettlement organization in St. Louis um, who uh, ran out of housing, <laughs> the, the, the resettlement office had a rule to resettle refugees within a uh, close radius of the resettlement office, but they ran out housing affordable housing options and so this is a student who just this is a somewhat you know polemical idea but of uh, thinking about taking the show on the road and, and having trucks that provide mobile services um, for refugees, but also do it in a way that benefits um, so it sort of expands the the the, uh, the territory of where um, uh, refugees could be resettled. Um, so, we had students look at different housing options, um, diversifying the housing mix to adapt for the different needs that refugee families have. A lot of project, students who did projects around uh, thinking about uh, participation. There's a student who did a book for young people who were arriving in Detroit. Uh, that just starts to explain what is going on here, why does this look the way it does? How does these vacant lots happen? What can I do about them, and so on and so forth. So these are just uh, a handful of, of projects that students did. but I think in the end, um, uh, you know well, I think a lot of this stuff seems pretty 30,000 feet, um, But I think in the end, we, we did manage to come up with some ideas that were pretty well received from the different resettlement offices that we were working with, um, and I think really felt at the end of the day that Um, There are indeed a lot of many ways that architecture, landscape architecture, urban planning uh, as disciplines can really um, help make greater gateway cities that help refugees integrate and thrive. Thanks.
1: So thank you very much to our, our four panelists for opening up worlds of experience and worlds of work. That edify all of us, I think, and make us uh, really impressed by what you're doing. And um, Shannon gave me a, a bunch of questions just to get us started with a conversation up here, and then be, you know, remembering your questions. And in a few minutes, we'll jump into them. My first question would be, and I, I think of myself as a professor, uh, looking at all these great problems in the world around us and all the, the things you read in the newspaper and every day, and often saying, "But I'm not an activist." I don't do that kind of thing. I write the books, I teach the classes, and I kind of pull back. I don't know if you can speak vocationally at all. Like, how did you go from being, minding my own business, caring for my job, my family, doing the job, that you know, my day job, so to speak, to expanding into this more active role and trying to you know, make the conditions better and take up this kind of leading role? And, and sort of, I think this is an open thing, if you'd like to respond to this question, but sort of the vocational, shift from observer spectator to active. How how do you make this decision and, and maybe anything personally about why you do what you do that you can share with us? Whoever would like to go first. Sabi, you want to
3: sure. go okay. Um So I, I guess e- even though I work at an academic institution, I don't think of myself as a scholar first, um, and that might just be because of how I came to this work. So I've worked as a lawyer for six years before um, coming to the law school to teach, um, and I um, had done the clinic as a law student, um, and, you know, I, I was very much drawn to this work because of my own family's history. Uh, my parents are from Iran, and they got asylum here, uh, and so, you know, I grew up with a very sort of activist mentality, constantly talking about human rights violations and what was going on in the world. Um, I knew that that's something that I wanted to do with my career and then um, s- somehow landed in this job where I'm lucky enough to, to get to wear um, an academic hat and uh, also get to um, do advocacy work. And so I think um, being in a legal clinic at a law school. Really allows me to wear both hats, and any um, the scholarship that I do ends up having a, a focus on um, immigrants' rights and um, asylum seekers, and and different um, approaches and models to to fixing um, things that I see that are uh, wrong with the system, or um, different approaches for moving forward and things like that. So I think you know I came to this with a with both hats on. Yeah, yeah that's great. Thank you. Hmm.
2: I'm not sure where to start. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I'm an English teacher, I'm a language teacher, but I think I'm always drawn to um, just, to, to do work to fight against inequities. Um, I think also because my husband is from Brazil and um, I have a lot of, of, of friends and people I know in the community who have been undocumented, lived, lived as undocumented people. Um, and it also, it bothers me because I feel like the, um, the American public doesn't understand immigration and, and how it works. They think you can just get in line and get a green card. Um, so I think that's one thing I'm doing. I'm always trying to educate people, you know, my grandmother said to me, well, why don't people learn English before they come here? I'm like, well, if they're burning down your village, you don't really have time to, you know, brush up on your English before you get on the plane. Um, so I'm just always trying to just kind of learn about people's realities and spread the word. Um, yeah.
4: Uh, for me, it's, it's um kind of hard to talk about this. But I I really admire the Harbor Bridge, Uh, the people there, how they help immigrants and uh, too many people and uh, too advanced and uh, and learning the languages and the the language. And that is hard for us. And I really appreciate this, what they're doing. and I, could add, I know people from the United States are very friendly, but some, as uh, Jennifer said, don't understand about uh, why immigrants uh, we come here, and that's kind of very hard. But um, I see there is uh, a lot of people that help us.
5: Yeah, just, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not a academic. Um, I'm a professor in practice, and mostly what I do is uh, urban planning and design projects. And um, it's uh, somewhat activist in nature, that, that, that kind of work. And one of my favorite things about teaching at the GSD is training future activists, right? Training people who, um, I mean, ultimately that's, that's the goal of these studios. I mean, we try to create work that, is, that um, is gonna help move the needle on some certain issues. But at the end of the day, I'm there to, to train future architects and planners and landscape architects. And I wanna do it in a way that they um, you know, are doing this kind of work. They're using their skills of um, making spaces um, to make, them, make better spaces that work for um, the kind of people that we met on this trip. That's the uh, you know that's that's my favorite thing about about what I do, yeah. and so um, hopefully in this class I, have got thirteen you know people, who took the class who are hopefully going to be activists and are going to work in this arena, um, and you know use their architecture skills not to design like really fuss over expensive, you know, bathroom knob details, <laughs> but um, really think about how can we make, how, you know, how can we design affordable housing that is um, accessible and that is, um, reflects the different kind of family structures that, you know, you see, um, and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Bathroom knobs are so important. <laughs> Actually,
5: they are they're, they're important, but we pretty much solved that with the lever That's knob, right. you know. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Again, going back to the kinds of questions that Shannon was suggesting, I was thinking one of the brilliant things about what Shannon has done tonight is bringing together four different people who are kind of like minded but in different parts of the university, different backgrounds, different kind of work. And the question was really about is this an easy or a hard place to collaborate? Because I'm thinking my experience as for a while, the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions. And one of the hard parts was you know, this brilliant university and so many people around Harvard doing so many things related to those different fields, how to connect the dots and how to get the like-minded people to connect. And I'm wondering, in your experience, you know, with uh, staff or administrators or faculty, students, is it easy to connect the dots and get people to collaborate or do you often find there must be somebody out there to work with, but I don't know where they are. Or how do you how do you collaborate at Harvard when you have an overabundance of possibilities? Does that yeah? You don't have to go in order, but anybody can jump in. Um, you can go in order.
3: Um, Let's go in reverse order.
5: Reverse order. Okay. Yeah. I I think um, it, everyone's so busy, and that's what makes it hard. But I think what also makes it hard is like I'm I'm sometimes a little self-conscious. So like showing this work, which you know, you probably heard me a few times say, "Well, this is thirty thousand feet. This is really expensive." And I have so much admiration for the kind of work y'all do, like on the ground. You know, which is, I think, the important work. And let's face it, what what we did here, there's a certain luxury, right, that, that you have when you have an opportunity to to, to sit, and, you know, in front of a computer and design a really nice refugee resettlement office. Um, and so I think uh, I, I I try to build bridges, but I but I I also um, Know that we all have different um uh ways of um advocating right and different 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 tools for doing it, and it's not always easy to know um for example in a design studio like how we would for example work with your office right and 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 like th- there's no more important work than the kind of legal services that you're providing, but what would it mean for? I mean, we should think about it now and figure it out. What would it mean like, for you know, an architect to work with you know, somebody who does legal, uh, an attorney or someone who provides legal services? Would it be fruitful? Would it be, that's interesting, but I'm going to work on my building and you work on your legal services? Or might there be some opportunity for collaboration? I don't know.
1: So yeah. is it sort of by hearsay that you hear who around the university would be helpful to work with, or does somebody connect you? Um, yeah, Shannon. <laughs> <laughs> so Shannon's the, one, the key to Harvard <laughs> okay. Daisy do you have anything about how do you find the right people to work with outside your immediate
4: realm it's difficult because we don't have so much like uh, we are really educated um, I see um, some of the people that work for Harvard as a custodian um, they make a uh, a committee for TPS and uh, try to um, um, to educate the the people that have TPS and try to uh, get involved and get more educated and understand uh, make understand that um, if Harvard uh, can do something about uh, about immigrants, but it's hard about people they don't sometimes they don't kind of sometimes they're like afraid and because of their jobs or, or the supervisors don't let her yeah. go or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.
1: So it's hard but you do it.
4: Yeah. Um, I
2: think we've, we've had successful uh, collaborations across the campus. Um, more with it's been more with staff, and now it's it's kind of um, branching into faculty who are a part of centers. Uh, the founder of the bridge program, Carol Kolnick, is here, and she's been doing a lot of great research um, outreach, getting um, mentors for the internship program. So um, that's been great, and it's it is kind of a it is a little bit of a, a word of mouth. It's, it starts here, and then you know, talk to this person, talk to that person. I haven't done that as as much um, collaborating with um, kind of. Professors and students uh, as maybe I, c- I could have my job before this one was at Bentley College doing service learning and it was a little hit or miss. It would either be a, you know a great collaboration that the community really got a lot out of or else it would just be something that you know the students thought it was a good idea, but then you know the world is on a calendar a certain calendar and then there's the academic calendar you're trying to fit it in there so um, I think when you're just busy trying to teach your classes and serve people, um, you have, you, I don't know, I've been a little bit hesitant about um, doing big collaborations with, with students, but.
1: but... do you ever find you have to like, just pick up the phone and call somebody or an email somebody you've never met and ask them for help? Or is it by the word of mouth that you can connect with A people? lot of the
2: volunteer tutors are just word of mouth, um, but I've, I've had good luck. You know, I, I called up the Divinity School um, Activities person said, "Can I can I have a table at your activities fair?" Yes, sure. Come on over. So, um, I think people are once they know about uh, the bridge and the work we do, they're they're pretty open and supportive. Yeah. And just one note about the um, physical space thing. It's really nice that we get to do ESL not in a basement. We're actually on the third floor of a nice building. Because a lot of English as a second language um, classes, they're always in basements. You know, I I met the person who coordinates it for the um, Cambridge public libraries, and they have a beautiful library. I went to go visit her. She's in the basement of the Central Square Library, so.
5: Resettlement Mm -hmm. offices, too. I mean, that's (laughs) what inspired the students to do uh, projects around resettlement offices, because refugees spend so much time in resettlement offices like um, when they first arrive, and they're just, their basements, they're windowless, all the ones we saw, except for one. Um, and it made a difference. <laughs> the one that we saw that was like a nice building. Mm-hmm. You just, it just—it just made a difference, you know. Yeah. So. Uh.
3: Um, yeah. I mean, I, I wish there were more opportunities for interdisciplinary collaboration. So thank you, Shannon, for bringing us all together. I think, you know. Uh, being at a big university has lots of benefits, but also challenges, so trying to figure out who to reach out to. But I think one of the benefits of having this Harvard Representation Initiative now it has allowed us to reach out to um, a lot of different schools across the university campus um, to try to spread the word about our services. So that's been um, a great way of starting to collaborate more. Uh, one of the other things, I mean, as, as part of the clinical the clinic work that we do representing people who are seeking asylum, we often collaborate with doctors and psychologists. So, um, and there's a chapter at the medical school that uh, a physicians for human rights chapter there, and residents of, um, at Harvard are also doing um, evaluations and things like that for us too. So, uh, you know, we get to collaborate with pockets of the community, but it would be great to sort of think more creatively about um, more collaboration that can happen.
1: Uh, one of the other, I just have two more questions. Um, one of them that Shannon asks, it gives you a chance to um, speak to the camera. Um, are there things missing at Harvard? Like you wish that Harvard, you could do your work better if Harvard had such and such, or you wish there was some other kind of connecting group or collegiality or an office for this or consortium for that or whatever. Is there something of a new president, it's a new era? Um, is there anything that jumps out at you as a missing piece that would make your work so much easier or the work of helping people better if we had one thing more or two things more than we have? Hmm. Go from either end. <laughs> or the middle. Of the middle. <laughs> <laughs> it's informal, so i didn't just jump in if hmm. have, you have know, something to say. Anything missing? Hmm.
2: One idea: um, many of the uh, hourly workers they can get work release to come to English classes, um, and this was negotiated a bunch of years ago. And um, I think at this point it's time for them to get work release for um, digital literacy and, and computer classes. So that's more of a policy thing that could yeah. happen. And um, yeah, we could use more staff and more space and more marketing for so everyone on campus would know about us. So, but um, I don't know that there's. Um, Specific, yeah. you know, office that's missing. Okay,
1: Good.
5: thank you. I, I thought of one. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the way that these studios come about is, um, I just decide that it would be interesting to do this. <laughs> I contact refugee resettlement organizations. I go and raise money to bring the students to these cities, um, and uh, it's. Would be better if there was a um, kind of a lot of schools have you know community design centers, and they sort of serve as a front door where people who have need for some kind of outside-the-box design thinking around some issue can call, can email and say, "Oh, I heard about the work you do uh, at your school." Um, well, we would love some help thinking through um, how to make Cleveland better for refugees. Um, and then, on the backside, to sort of uh, hold the students accountable to make sure that they're, they have a successful, you know, client relationship, that they deliver things, that there's a way to evaluate, there's a way to build on the knowledge. So that's the thing. I do the studio, and then, you know, sometimes it gets turned into a book. And, it's, hard to, it's hard, sometimes hard to build on the momentum. Fortunately, um, at, the, at the GSD, we're, we're um, piloting a community design center of sorts. And yeah, so the idea is it's hopefully going to be a front door, right? So, so um, communities can see this kind of work and then call us instead of us calling them. And hopefully, there'll be some, some more funds to support you know field trips and, and things. So that, that's, that's one that we're missing, but we're getting.
1: How did that... Did somebody perceive this missing piece? And decide, yeah. Did a group of you just talking over coffee or something say, this is something we need to do? Or a um, five-year plan? It's been a discussion for a while. It's
5: been um, something we all thought the, the design school could use. Yeah. There was something like it in the 60s. Surprise, surprise. Um, got shut down in the early 70s. It was called Field Service Office... Field... I can't remember. Anyway... Um, and uh, there's just a sense that we need to revive it and we need to have it again. I think there are a lot a lot of, there's a lot of students who are um, increasingly interested in community engagement yeah. and doing, and getting outside of the computer, <laughs> you know, and, and um, doing participatory work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's great, but with that comes a lot of extra work and also responsibilities about how do you do community engagement in an ethical way. So there was just a, a lot of people thinking that uh, that there was a need for this at the same time yeah. um, and so it just we made a fuss about it and mm-hmm. you know there was people thought it sounded like a good idea so yeah, we're going to yeah. give it a shot
1: yeah. so make a fuss that's a key thing mm-hmm. squeaky wheel gets the grease yes Daisy did you have anything you wish there was at Harvard that isn't
4: uh, I think um, we have like a harbor bridge that uh, we would like to have more, more teachers, and they can give us uh, like a, a, a different programs, like, like to how can we can grow up as a person and professional. I know they're doing a lot. Uh, probably we need more teachers and, and probably more space too. Yeah. yeah.
1: How do you get more teachers? Do you, you just hope people will know about it and volunteer, or you talk to people? Or- the
2: actual teachers are paid; they're staff. Okay. Yeah, and the volunteers are
1: oh, the volunteers are okay. extra. I see. Yeah. Okay, and the volunteers just hear about it and show up and say, "I want to do something." Is that?
2: Um. Yeah. Some sometimes I advertise, but it's okay. a lot of word of mouth.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Thank you. Yeah. Sabi, so, do you have anything to add on that? Or?
3: I mean, I think other. Uh, other opportunities for this kind of interdisciplinary conversation um, to foster more collaboration would be great because I think, um, you know, working together, I think yeah. we can do more. Uh, so, okay. yeah. cool.
1: The final question, and then I might ask you if you have any questions for each other, and then we'll open it up. But the final question: uh, What sustains you in your work? And this might be the question many of us have to face: burnout question. So you're all young and healthy and you do this work, <laughs> but you know, can, you, can you see a, a sustaining this over a, a long time? What is it that gives you the energy or the hope to do it and come back to it, when surely you could find something easier to do maybe somehow?
5: <laughs> Bathroom fixtures. Uh, yeah. The or knobs. Exactly. Uh,
1: what is it that gives you the sustaining power to, to keep at it and not to turn away burnout? With, we're all yeah. listening with open ears because we are all in danger of burnout all the time. I think. Mm-hmm.
3: Any I think. wisdom here. For me, my clients keep me going. I feel really lucky lucky to work with really inspiring um, people who, um, you know, have so much courage and strength. And you know, I get to I get to meet really phenomenal people every day, and that's just a um, really important part of my job. So. You know, I think that, that energy really keeps me going. And community, right? I think I'm really lucky to have good colleagues and and being able to share moments of sadness and anger and outrage and all of those things. I think that um, really helps keep me going too. So. Um, yeah, I would also say my
2: connections, um, the the graduate students that work for me, I often say to them, "You give millennials a good name, <laughs> because they're they're really doing great things and are going to go on." And you know, one of them, graduates from last year, she's you know working for a senator in D.C. working in policy, um, and then people who study with us, seeing them make moves, and um, they're very inspiring. And I also have really great colleagues um, who are just who are really well qualified. Um, and it also helps to have to be teaching this kind of setting where you know, we're staff, we're not having to like, wait for our next Department of Education grant. Um, And it's also, it's fun, and I find it easier than, I taught ESL K through 12. That was really hard. (laughs) This Mm -hmm. is a lot easier to work with adults. I can leave the room and come back and they're still in the same chair. (laughs) Uh,
4: For me, um, I think in my my family and for my community, because I want to get well-educated and um, and help the community as well. And I want to be a role model for my kids. Okay, yeah.
1: okay. Well, that's a beautiful element. To... No, thank you. Kids see you doing it, and then they will grow yeah. up with this value. Yeah. That's very nice, thank, thank you. you. Yeah.
5: Daniel? I would say these folks, you know, I, I think the best thing about these classes is just getting a chance to go to in this case Cleveland and St. Louis and Detroit and you know go to these neighborhoods where there's frankly a lot of poverty there's a lot of vacancy um, and um, to see uh, people who are just earnestly trying to make these communities better um, more equitable um, more interesting and uh, there it's really inspiring yeah. and so I think that keeps me going it's just the kind of resourcefulness and positive, positivity that you yeah. see in spite of some of these uh, yeah. cities that yeah. are really facing some challenges. Yeah. Um, everyone in this picture uh, somebody who's, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, someone we met on the trip who was working in some really interesting way yeah. to um, make a neighborhood better.
1: It's interesting, all all your answers in a way said the people you work with sustain you both at home and at the workplace and the students give you the strength, so you give out a lot but you're getting a lot back every day and that makes it very beautiful. Mm -hmm. Before we open it up to the very learned uh, audience we have here, is there anything you'd like to add or any question that that you'd like to ask one another? Uh, This is your big chance to ask each other questions in public. (laughs) Anything you'd like to uh, ask or add that hasn't been brought
2: up. I'm curious if you know um, it seems sometimes it seems like the refugee resettlement, the places they pick are sort of I'm like, did you pull, pull that out of a hat? Like they'll, they'll take people from a really hot climate and then like put them in a the really cold yeah, that happens a city lot. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. you know. Does Is there any rhyme or reason to that? Do you know there that? is rhyme
5: or reason. Um, there are a lot of factors that that go into um, deciding where to resettle refugees it has a lot to do with just the kind of internal workings of the seven um, resett- national resettlement organizations um, but one of the um, one of the things so before the the research assignment that that I gave the students was I assigned each student a uh, hypothetical refugee family, and I said, "Find a house for this family, resettle them and you, and they made these maps that were very interesting. They, they were like these kind of sieve drawings where they said, "Okay," and each layer of the sieve was a different criteria. So, well, uh, they should be in a tolerant community, and so they would make a map of you know communities where there weren't lots of hate groups, and it should be in a uh, you know area where uh, it's family from Syria, where there you know there's mosques nearby or there's transportation nearby, and they just kept whittling it away until they got to a house. Hmm. And it's really interesting, but, and so it was a way for us to think about what are the, spatially, what are the different criteria that we think help, would help a, a, a refugee do well. And I, I mentioned it because the, uh, the most controversial um, criteria was, do you put um, Syrian refugees near other Syrian refugees? Do you, right, um, do you put, or do you not do that? And throughout the trip, we really saw a lot of um, different ideas about this. There are some who said, no, we, we, we explicitly do not cluster uh, refugee populations. Um, one, it's illegal. It's a violation of the Fair Housing Act to steer right, um, You know, a refugee coming over from the Congo to a neighborhood where there's also people for, in the same place. Um, but B, it might be good in the short term. It might help people sort of get their bearings and learn the ropes of living in this neighborhood. But it's bad in the long term because it, it, what, what happens is people are less likely to learn English, less likely to get outside of these kind of enclaves. Um, and so it was a debate that we had all throughout the uh, semester. Um, so there are different rhymes and reasons I would say, uh, and yeah. not no clear consensus on
1: not put the hot country people in the cold places and vice versa you know that no
5: student ever kind of thing but of all the students, no one ever said it should be a warm climate or it should be a cold <laughs> climate, which is interesting, and it doesn't it, you know you've got huge uh you know Somali population and um maine and and Minneapolis, oh, yeah, yeah. and a lot of it by the way is is um you know migration people sometimes get resettled wherever they get resettled and the first thing they try to do is make their w- way to wherever you know if there's a cousin uh, or something yeah there's a cousin yeah. or there's a there's a there's a critical mass of people from that country so i mean and in in some ways it it's amazing you go to akron ohio i mean there's like incredible um uh Bhutanese community in in north uh, ohio uh, north uh, akron and because of that critical mass, there's like lots of amazing restaurants, and which tends not to happen so much when things yeah. are spread out. So it's this sure. debate between, yeah. you know. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't no, talk too much. Thank you. Um, you said that you have gone around and raised money to do this kind of work. Can you tell us who gives you money to do this kind of work? Gladly. Well, I sat down and I thought, who has lots of money who supports refugees? And I thought the guy from Chobani, uh, and I just wrote him, and uh, he's like, "That sounds interesting." It really worked out that way, and uh, and I he said, "Me go down, you know, me with my people." Um, went to his office in New York, the Chobani office. Um, they had a grant at at the time. They thought this is perfect. This is just the kind of thing that we want to fund. Um, and you know, I made a pitch and I got the money.
1: <laughs> it's very simple. Yeah, it's easy. It never
5: works out that way, but this time it did. Yeah. So, so thank you, Chobani. <laughs> and eat Chobani. <laughs> Yeah.
1: I think on any question, if anyone else on the panel ever wants to jump in on a point, they're welcome to.
3: Hi, Basie. Hi. I am from Colombia. I could ask the question in Spanish, but uh, okay. for them to understand, I'll okay. ask it in English. Okay. Um, you said that one of the things that you're missing is, or that you would want to have more of, are teachers who can teach you human skills and how to be a better person, or something like that. I, I think I heard you say. What are the kinds of skills that you're looking for in a teacher that you feel that
4: could be beneficial huh? for your growth as a person? Uh, interesting question. Um, well, uh, First of all, we have uh, good teachers in the Harbor Bridge, like uh, ESL teachers. And uh, now we have a specialty on career and professional development. Um, probably uh, teachers with uh, finances and administration, or Psychologist, and um, interested in learn or take classes in, in psychology and, and finance. Yeah, yeah. Thank you,
2: um, Daniel. You mentioned
0: trauma-informed design, um, and I was just curious. Could you talk a little bit more about what
2: that looks like?
5: Uh, Yeah, it it looks it comes in all shapes and sizes, and it's a kind of emerging field. Um, I I never knew about it until uh, somebody in Detroit said that this would be a good thing to apply to this neighborhood, and then a student said this sounds like interesting. I want to learn about it, and um, she did, and I learned by working with the student, Um, and. yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, applied, uh, it's an emerging field. It's applied in all different kinds of situations. Um, and it depends on the scale that you're deploying it at. So if you're designing outdoor public spaces, it might mean one thing. If you're designing a room, it might mean another. It might mean thinking about the color of the, that you paint the walls. It might mean the, you know, the, the surface of the, um, the, the floor. It might mean the, uh, the acoustics of the space. So um, it's not, you know, it's more, a, at this point, a pseudoscience, I think, than a science, but, uh, but it's an exciting field, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to think about how, how to design spaces that, um, uh, that you know, mitigate, I, I think, trauma in some way. Yeah.
2: yeah. Question for Dan. Have you thought in your design projects of s- small performance spaces so that traditional arts can be preserved and perhaps shared with the larger community?
5: Yeah, for sure. So, um, in, uh, There was a slide that I showed of a kind of drawing of a neighborhood in Cleveland and um, b- b- performance spaces were a part of that uh, plan. And just exactly for that, that reason, finding vacant lots and, and thinking about ways to just turn them into simple spaces for sharing culture.
1: I have a question, um, I, my own question, not Shannon's question. Um, mm-hmm. I'm wondering, you're working with so many people in so many different you know, situations and so on like that. Do religious differences make a difference? Um, so you're working with a, a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu or a Taoist. Or somebody of a traditional African tradition, whatever, does that, you just take, respect them because they're human, you know, this is their values, their beliefs. Do you have to interact differently with different people ever because they have a different religious expectation or background that they bring to their work? Anybody, or all of you could answer that.
3: I mean, we represent people from all over the world, all yeah. different religions. Um, I'd say I think maybe the only times it, it comes up as something that's sort of on the table is anything to talk about besides maybe in the context of their case, if, if part of their claim is related to religious persecution or something like that, um, is if, for example, I'm working with somebody from the Middle East, um, I tend to share that my family's from Iran and they're Muslim and you know I don't practice, but that's sort of my cultural background such that if the client that I'm working with isn't comfortable with that, they have a choice to work with somebody else in the office because um, I think we try to do what we can to okay. put people at ease um, and you know there's no need for somebody to be stuck with me if they'd rather work with somebody else so Um, But, you know, I think our goal is to, you know, be welcoming and and work with people regardless of their belief system. And um, oftentimes we're trying to provide them with protection so they can uh, practice their faith and express their beliefs. And staying here might be their only way of doing that. And so we try our hardest to, to, you know, get them the protection they need so they can.
4: Um, in my opinion, is that we are humans, and it doesn't matter religions where they come from. We must do, like get united and and learn um, from each other. I think we have a a lot to give uh, to our different cultures. Here we have, as an immigrant, we have to learn the culture how it is and um, and. And religions I think is, um, is important and we must to respect but we must to see like we are humans and uh, we respect we must respect each other
2: um, I'd say the, the community at the bridge is pretty harmonious um, and I, I think it will be interesting that you know university had the task force on diversity and inclusion um, and I think that the, the report said, I think it was like $10 million for faculty and students and like five cents for staff or something. <laughs> I don't know, it was like $250,000. So I'm wondering um, kind of what um, tools we're going to have for having some of those conversations around our differences and our similarities. Um, there hasn't been a lot of concrete steps yet. So, yeah. I mean, as an instructor, you know, I've found that you know, there's certain topics like I don't I don't get real enthusiastic about Halloween in my class because I know a lot of people are, and it's something that a lot of my students are really uncomfortable with. So just kind of anecdotally yeah, things no, come up so but that makes sense,
1: thank you. Yeah. Daniel,
2: anything to have on that? no, I think that's
1: okay. Other questions?
0: Um, you all mentioned that you feel really supported um, in your work by your colleagues um, and the folks that you see every day. What do you think is the level of engagement with Harvard students, like across the college and the graduate schools, with the work that you do? Do you feel like they're engaged, that they know what you're doing? Um, just the sort of student body engagement with your day to day operations and like the questions that you're dealing with?
3: I feel really lucky, I think, at the law school, at least the students are really what have kept me going in many ways since the election. Right after the election, over something like 380 students signed up to work on immigration (laughs) rights projects, and then, you know, um, and really a lot of them stuck with it, right? It wasn't just like a momentary peak of interest. Um, So I I think, you know, uh, we're lucky to be in, in a place Working in a space where there are students who are really eager to to um, work side by side with us, and we couldn't do our work without them. Um, so, you know, we've really expanded the range of things we do since the election, and that's all because we have so many fantastic students who are, you know, excited to do this work with us. Um, so, yeah. Um. We have a,
2: a nice connection with uh, undergraduate students through the Institute of Politics at the Kennedy School. Um, they, they come to trainings to become citizenship tutors, and they're so enthusiastic that um, I think some of them actually get turned away from the program. And then also, once they're in it, we often have two undergrads paired with one person who wants to be tutored. Because there's so many of them. So that's been a really nice collaboration. Um, and I also hear anecdotally that a lot of the the undergraduate students have really close relationships with the people in the dining halls they see every day, so um, I feel like there's some nice connections there. Um, and then I often have graduate students that, that volunteer as tutors. I think I would have more if I could sort of clone myself. I'm kind of limited by how many um, matches I can kind of manage and, and put together. So, yeah. And I, th- I feel like it's pretty informed student body from when I, when I talk to
4: people.
1: Cloning, you could go over to the bio lab yeah. and they'll, they'll work that out
4: for you. Yeah. Yes. Um, as an employee from Harbor, I see, uh, I think it was last year, that the students, they um, participated a lot in and get engaged about the the benefits for the employees. They want to change it, and the students went to... a. Uh, to the, the the where the place where Harbor Bridge is and they stay for, for whole night until they pass the 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 benefits that don't change the benefits and be positive for the employees. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah I mean my students are amazing and engaged and I would just say I feel like every year students get more, seem more and more politically engaged, more and more like they're studying whatever they're studying, um, not to design, to fuss over bathroom details and fixtures, but to really use um, their respective disciplines to make, uh, make you know, for example, neighborhoods better for um, for refugees and immigrants, and so it's it's pretty inspiring. Um, you work a lot with, uh,
2: with the employees at Harvard. So many of the bridge family members have come to you and your office and have gotten so much help. Um, but you also work with
1: students and faculty, I guess. Um, do you see differences in situations? Do you see overlaps in, in people's situations
5: who are, who are struggling with immigration problems?
3: yeah, I think our immigration system is broken for everyone, really. Um, so I think, as you were saying earlier, there, there are so many misconceptions about you know, just get in line and you know there's a way that there is a line to get in. And so I think that the the lack of immigration options um, and sort of realistic um, options that reflect you know the lives of people who've lived here for so many years um, affects everyone. Uh, you know it doesn't matter students, staff, faculty, Harvard, not Harvard. Um, so I think we see so similar immigration issues across all sectors of the population, um, and similar challenges with the with the system and the backlogs and um, you know, the challenges around adjudication and getting cases heard. That's across everyone. I'm
2: wondering if you could each comment on maybe something that has surprised you about doing your work um, that, that you, you know, was unexpected and that you could share with us.
1: If any surprise,
3: maybe no surprises maybe how many friends I've made from through my clients, like and how, how lucky I feel to have this huge family of clients who are now friends and family and you know how supported I feel by all of them in my work, right? I think I came to this. Um, having done a lot of different jobs where I just the types of relationships I had with the people I worked with were really different, Um, so, yeah.
5: Yeah, I mean, I could say um, just how um, diverse refugees are, I mean, that seems really obvious, but I think um, just in the course of this project, um, just understanding just how different uh, the needs are. It was, it was one one thing that, that specifically that surprised me was going to Detroit and um, meeting with a lot of people who, you know, were kind of involved with philanthropy. So, so for example, in Detroit, there's a big Syrian population, and um, so Detroit has been, you know, until recently, seeing a lot of uh, Syrian refugees, and. Uh, there's a lot of philanthropic organizations that donate money to families uh, who want, you know, need computers, and you know, will help them reimburse their flight because refugees have to pay the the flight back that they when they come over to the states. But what I what I learned is that um, most of this philanthropy is really is really um, country specific. That is the you know, like it seemed to us that that you know. The Syrian like philanthropists have just helped Syrians, and the you know, and I don't mean to single out Syrians. I mean I think that was true in a lot of the communities that we saw, yeah. and I that 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 was a little bit surprising I think to me and um, yeah, okay. and and I think just the just descript, like this the kind of. Um, some v- frankly discriminatory attitudes um, between um, different refugee groups um, in certain neighborhoods. It's not, it's, there's conflict there um, often, yeah. and often conflict between, um, you know, sort of, I guess, refugees and people in, to a neighborhood and then people who have sort of lived in that neighborhood prior to an influx, let's say. And it's not—it's not always on the grounds of um, people being, you know, uh, discriminatory or xenophobic. There are all kinds of issues um, that affect more than i had go into detail that uh, speak to some real conflict. And I think um, I was surprised to learn about some of it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I have a question.
0: Hi um, thank you all so much for being here um, so I'm a first year student here at the Divinity School and it's been really cool when you like go around the circle and people are like, well what do you want to do and I've met a lot of students who want to do immigration or refugee advocacy work or refugee resettlement work and I know a lot of us here are students so what is like a course that you think that we should take while we're here that we might not be thinking about so like, for you, Daniel, I saw that you're urban planning. And in my mind now, I'm like, duh, I should take an urban planning class. <laughs> well, like, come on over to yeah, the design school. Wasn't on my radar. So like, for you, what do you think is a course that that could really help us grow our, our toolbox?
1: Chance to advertise. Uh, yeah.
3: There's an immigration policy and social change class that, did you take it? Um, that. The clinic director teaches Debbie Anchor in the spring, and it um, brings in guest speakers uh, pretty much every week who provide perspectives on sort of different slices of immigration advocacy. um, And I think really uh, is a helpful introduction to the topic and to sort of the different hats people can wear um, when doing immigration advocacy and often lots of cross registrants in it, right? Shannon can tell you all about it.
1: Shannon, you mentioned some in your introduction, some courses that or professors that inspired you. Do you want to add any recommendations on courses they got to take?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, uh, Jacqueline Baba is uh, doing a course right now through the law school and the Kennedy School, and she also does a lot of work with public health, which is migration and human rights. Um, I just remember being surprised at like all the different initiatives, Mary Waters, uh, the professor of sociology, unfortunately she's in LA, so why she's not able to speak with us today. She does an amazing migration and incorporation workshop in the spring, it meets every other week during lunchtime, but then she's also doing a sociology of immigration course, Um, and I can definitely think of some others as well, but it's really amazing all the, we just have to kind of piece it together, some of the different things that are going on here. I think we'll wrap up a little bit early and hopefully the reception is already ready in the brawn room so (laughs) we won't miss it too much. So I just want to thank you all for such a rich discussion today and in our world right now this discussion gives me hope hearing all the positive work that's going on. I often say that sometimes it feels like the world is on fire but right now I look and see all like the amazing firefighters out there right now. So I really want to thank you all for coming to speak about your experience, um, personal experience as well, not just your scholarly work, but your narratives and how they're so moving for all of us. And again, it helps with me give a sense of direction of where we can go. And like I said, I invite you all to join me in the brawn room for a reception following this panel uh, where we can gather and continue our conversations there. And if you haven't already, I invite you to please fill out the sign-in sheet on your way there so I can kind of... We know all the amazing people that have been here tonight. And I want to thank everyone involved again, especially our panelists and our moderator. Um, Let's give them a round of applause, (laughs) right?